Hello, and welcome to Doc Tell Me More, my podcast where I take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike, and I'm your host, and I just want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 28 of Doc Tell Me More. And I feel like that there are a lot of new listeners this week, and so if you're tuning in for the first time, Doc Tell Me More is a podcast I started two years ago, um, really be- uh, to... Because excuse me, because of my love for documentaries, and what I like to do is I watch a lot of documentaries, and then I'm always someone who, after the documentary is over, I like to do some research on that topic because sometimes documentaries can be skewed and they don't give you the whole story, and so I I like to look at what was fact, what was fiction, and I also just like to look at potential details that were left left out. Even great documentaries don't cover every thing about a certain topic. And so this podcast is really about diving in deeper to a topic, learning a little more in depth about it, talking about maybe what was left out of a documentary. And just a, again, just a chance to to really analyze a topic a little bit more in depth. I, I'm, I'm not here to analyze the, necessarily the quality of the documentary, although I have <laughs> done that with a couple of documentaries. I'm here to just look at the topic at a deeper level. And, you know, my first 11 episodes of Doc Tell Me More, I looked at um, Ken Burns' baseball documentary. We, we dove into that. Uh, my next few episodes, I looked at actually Ken Burns' Civil War. And then the previous 10 episodes, I looked at The Last Dance. And so going into episode 28 here, um, I decided to look at one of the, the 30 for 30 ESPN documentaries. Now, um, a lot of you might know what the 30 for 30 documentaries are. Some of you might not. But in uh, what the 30 for 30 series is, it was actually started in 2009, which is kind of crazy. It's, just, it's already been 13 years. And that was really to honor ESPN's 30th anniversary and so they were going to look at initially different topics of, of events that happened in those 30 years. They've, they've since expanded that time frame. But the 30 for 30 series is just um, different documentaries that examine different sports topics. And so they have a lot out right now. Um, close to 100, I believe, 30 for 30s. And I thought it would be great to look at uh, the third one. That was actually ever filmed, and that was the 30 for 30 titled Small Potatoes, What Killed the USFL? And I chose that because um, the USFL was a league that existed from 1983 to 1985, and they just restarted the USFL uh, actually just a couple months ago. And so since, um, in honor of kind of that restarting of the USFL, I went and watched that documentary um, that 30 for 30 and decided to dive in deep to looking at, Hey, what look, look at a little bit more in depth on the original USFL, its origins, what it was all about, its demise. And then what is the new incarnation of the USFL looking like right now? And so that's what, uh, we're going to do here in the, in this podcast. I haven't really sketched out how much time this is going to take. My guess is, even though the documentary was just a one-part documentary, I'm guessing it's going to take two or three podcasts to really examine in depth uh, the um, this documentary and the topic of the USFL. So we'll kind of see how long this first part of the documentary takes. But anyways, uh, Doc, tell me more. Episode 28, we're going to examine the USFL through the documentary Small Potatoes, What Killed the USFL. And uh, and also the other research I've come up with since I watched the documentary. Now, I don't really... I look at so many different sources to uh, research each uh, podcast. It's tough for me to name every single source I've looked at. But I did want to share that kind of one of my major sources for this podcast and researching the USFL was the book called Football for a Buck by Jeff Perlman. And I, I read that book. It gives a really great detailed history of the USFL, and I pulled a lot of things from there. 
but there's so much that I, I just couldn't include. So I do encourage you, if you do have an interest in learning more about the USFL, to get that book, Football for a Buck by Jeff Perlman. Really, really great book. So with that said, let's strap in and let's talk about the USFL. So again, the 30 for 30, the small potatoes, what killed the USFL examines the rise and fall of the USFL. And so what was the USFL? The USFL was a spring football league that existed from 1983 to 85. And it was unique in a lot of ways. And one of the ways it was unique, it was that, it, like I said, it was a spring football league. Uh, as we know, football is typically, or not typically, it is a fall sport. Look at high school leagues, college, pro leagues. They have been played in the fall. And so when the USFL came out in the 80s, it, it was a spring league, which was very new and unique. And the people that founded the USFL hoped that they could find a market that, or their own little niche to have a spring football league where they're not really competing directly against the US, or excuse me, the NFL. Because their games are aren't going to go up against the NFL during their telecast, and so the USFL is really an experiment of hey, can a spring football league work alongside the NFL? Now, before we kind of get into even more of the uniqueness of the spring league, we should really need to look at why is football a fall sport. And I think one of the flaws of the documentary Small Potatoes was that they really didn't dig into why the USFL was founded or the origins of that. It, it just kind of get right into it a couple minutes in of, boom, here's the USFL starting in 1983. And that's really too bad because the origins of the USFL are, are really, you know, interesting story. And also really interesting why football is a fall sport and not a spring sport. Because you look at weather-wise, you know, depending especially where you're at in, in the United States, Spring can be just as good as fall in terms of weather, especially as you get later into a spring season compared to later into a, a fall season. And so why, why was football a fall sport, not a spring sport? Well, the simple reason why football became a fall sport when it was founded was because uh, at the time, you know, baseball was king. You think about uh, in the earliest earliest, even to the middle part of the 20th century, baseball was the national pastime. The NFL, when it was started in the 20s, uh, wasn't really a, uh, a big deal. And it took them decades to really get popular. And so since it wasn't as popular as baseball, they didn't have the money to build their own stadiums. And so they typically would use baseball stadiums. Uh, and baseball teams didn't want football teams playing in their stadiums in the spring, in the summer, kind of ruining their field. So they would allow them to play, but it had to be in the fall towards the end or after the baseball season. And so almost by default, football had to be a fall sport. Now, by the 1960s, this wasn't really necessary. Football eventually became more popular than baseball kind of around this time. Uh, they got more money from TV, and so football teams could afford their own stadiums. On top of that, their innovations such as artificial turf and better maintenance, um, oh, what's the word? Maintenance strategies of fields um, allowed football to be played at different times of the year. And so by the 60s, um, all these different innovations allowed a potential spring football league to exist if someone wanted to have a spring football league. On top of that, there really wasn't any competition in the 60s during the spring for a football league. If you look at the 60s, again, you had baseball was a major sport, but football is already pa passing in popularity. Um, there weren't really any of the mainstream sports in the spring that could really hold a candle to football. The NBA didn't really become popular to the 80s with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Hockey only had six teams up until 1967. And there, so there really wasn't anything else to watch then. So the thought was, if you start a spring football league, uh, you know, th th there was nothing that could really compete with it. 
So really the father of the USFL was a guy named David Dixon, and he is not mentioned at all in the documentary, which is just a shame. He is actually interviewed, but um, not about his role in starting the USFL. Now, he conceived of a spring league partially as a way to get New Orleans um, a football team. He realized that the NFL never expanded willingly. They, that, um, and yeah, that's even true for other professional sports like baseball, and they expanded it in around 1960, only expanded because of the threat of another league. So the same thing here. So David Dixon thought that if he created a rival league, that could prompt the NFL to give New Orleans an expansion team. So he brought this idea up to Paul Brown, who had been the Cleveland Browns coach and was no longer the coach. And he hadn't quite yet been, um, you know, he was getting ready to become the Cincinnati Bengals coach. And when he talked to Paul Brown, um, what was supposed to be a really quick conversation ended up being a really long all-day conversation. And Paul Brown told him that this was an idea that could work. And to not let anybody talk him out of that idea. And after asking around, he realized there's a lot of millionaires out there, some businessmen who would want into the league. So all of a sudden, he realized after talking to people that, hey, having a spring league, this is actually a legit idea. This isn't just kind of a bargaining chip I can use to get New Orleans a team. This is a league that could possibly work out. So he felt like he had a winning idea. Now, this idea got shelled because New Orleans did get an expansion team in 1966. And at the time, you had the NFL and the AFL, and they merged. And so, out of respect for New Orleans, since they got an expansion team, um, at this time in the 60s, his idea of the USFL, um, his interest in that kind of waned at the time, and he shelved that idea. He shelved that idea for about a decade or so. What got him reinterested in the league was the explosion of cable. Okay, so ESPN started, as I said, in 1979, and with other, uh, you know, and with TV no longer being about the three big networks, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, he realized that if he started a league, he could get a TV deal, which was vital for his success. Okay, and. Uh, and every league that had been successful had had a good TV contract, which I'll get into here in a little bit. Uh, he talked to another former coach, this time George Allen, who had led the Redskins to um, a Super Bowl appearance. And George Allen encouraged him to do it. He told him this idea would work. And he said almost the same thing that Paul Brown did and said, don't let anybody talk you out of this idea. And so at this time, Dave Dixon decided to give his idea of a spring football league a go. Now, there had been um, two leagues that had challenged the NFL once the NFL became popular. Um, and not just two, but um, there has been a couple more than that. But at least since 1960, there had been two leagues that had tried to challenge the NFL. One was the AFL, which I had I just kind of mentioned. And they existed for a decade from 1960 to 70. They had started because the NFL refused to expand. And so they started their league to challenge them. And they ended up being highly successful because uh, they got a TV deal with ABC. And this gave them money to sign good players. And one of their, their first big-time players they signed was Joe Namath. Um, and, and because of their success and the money they have, they did eventually merge with the NFL. And if you look at the NFL right now, a lot of the teams in the AFC conference, not all of them, but a lot of them were some of those AFL teams. So that team, so the AFL was highly successful. Well, the next league to challenge the NFL was called the World Football League. And this was started in 1974. Their goal was to bring football to a world stage. They didn't, <laughs> which is kind of funny. They did place a team in Honolulu, though. Their problem was cable hadn't really proliferated yet and they were not able to really get a good tv contract they had a deal with a channel called tvs not tbs tvs and so they actually couldn't get that a tv contract 
and they actually ended up folding midway through their second season. So they made it like one and half, one and two thirds seasons. And they actually tried to sign Joe Namath away from the Jets to bring legitimacy to their league. So I find it interesting that the two leagues that were went to challenge the NFL both either signed or tried to sign Joe Namath. And so again, essentially Dixon realized he needed a TV deal. Now both those leagues, the AFL and the World Football League, mind you, were fall leagues. Both of them were fall leagues. This was a spring league. And so uh, he went to... Um, he needed to make sure he got that cable deal. Um, and so Dave Dixon came up with the Dixon plan. And he was a very good, again, he's a businessman. He really put a lot of research into finding out, hey, what would work? What would it take to get a spring league to work? And he came up with kind of these five or six different points of his plan that it would take. Number one, he needed early TV exposure, like I said. Now, and the USFL was able to sign a TV deal with ABC and ESPN. They got about $13 million in 1983, about $16 million in 84, $14 in 85, and $18 million in 86 were their contracts. So they were able to sign a TV deal early. That was important. The second thing was he needed to have owners who could be patient to absorb years of losses. Almost any new league that starts, you know, you're going to take losses. And that's true with any business you're in. And so he needed owners that had the patience. Owners had to have a $1.5 million line of credit for emergencies. So, and that's um, some issues the World Football League had in 1974 and 75 with some financial issues. So he needed, patience was his big thing. Dixon knew they weren't, they weren't going to be necessarily super, super successful in the first couple of years. It was going to take a few years. Another thing kind of goes with that patience was um, financial, or at least being really conservative with finances. So they had a gentleman's agreement for a salary cap. Um, at the time, the NFL didn't have a salary cap. So the, the plan was to have a salary cap per team of $1.8 million dollars plus $500,000 where they could sign kind of two stars. And so their goal was that, that, that each team would boast maybe a couple superstars, but other than that, be made of regional talent, okay? And that kind of goes into another point where they wanted to really build a following in local markets. And so they had territorial drafts where um, each team had exclusive rights to five colleges they could draft local players but then they also each team had a budget for a huge local promotional rollout so really promoting their team in the community so it wasn't about initially with Dixon's plan it wasn't about going against the NFL signing as many talented guys as possible it was attracting a couple stars and then getting a local following with local players and so it's reaching out to community build around local players and being smart with your finances um, was the plan initially, and people agreed to that. And so the USFL ended up starting for the 1983 season. Uh, what also helped them was that there was an eight-week strike during the 1982 NFL season. So the hope was that, you know, they could kind of gain some interest because of the struggles the NFL was having there with their labor issues, um, but also strike and build a following. So initially, there were 12 teams in three divisions. Most of these were in the largest markets in the U.S., again, so they could get a TV deal. So the 12 teams, you had the Philadelphia Stars, the Boston Breakers, the New Jersey Generals, the Washington Federals, the Michigan Panthers, Chicago Blitz, Tampa Bay Bandits, Birmingham Stallions, the Oakland Invaders, the L.A. Express, the Denver Gold, and the Arizona Wranglers. What I kind of like about, I just like those names. Those are just cool names, like the Blitz, the Breakers, the Invaders, the Gold. Um, I think one thing that's kind of boring about even current leagues now, like the Major League Baseball, the NFL, NBA, kind of some boring names, really. So this was some really cool names and actually some cool color schemes, which caught people's attention. They actually had some really reputable coaches, too. Now, I mentioned George Allen had really talked Dave Dixon into actually, hey, 
doing the league. He ended up being the coach of the Chicago Blitz. As I mentioned, he had taken the Redskins to a Super Bowl. Chuck Fairbank was the coach of New Jersey. He had coached at the University of Oklahoma and for the New England Patriots. Red Miller coached the Denver Gold. He was a former Broncos coach. And then John Ralston coached the Invaders. He was also a former Broncos coach. So there were some reputable coaches to give them uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of some, some positive momentum there when establishing the league. Now, the rules of the USFL were almost pretty much similar to the NFL, with a, with a couple exceptions. One, a wide receiver only needed one foot in bounds. Um, the clock was the same, except following the two-minute warning in the second quarter and the fourth quarter, the clock would stop after a first down, kind of like college rules. They were the first pro league to utilize the two-point conversion, and there was no excessive celebration. So if the NFL was considered the no-fun league, uh, this was the fun league, and Charlie Steiner has that comment in the documentary. And they also, in 1985, introduced the challenge process, which we see now. So um, similar rules, but a, l- a little bit different. So obviously the challenge with any new league is to how do you put a team together? And so there's a, a few different ways teams cobbled together their um, or found their players. The Chicago Blitz was one of the teams that they offered open tryouts. And they elected over 3,000 people around the country. Um, a couple times they showed up to the tryouts and realized they didn't bring any footballs, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and they ended up signing some players to contracts from those open tryouts. Most of them really didn't pan out. Ironically, they had one player named Carl Mecklenburg who they did not sign. And he actually ended up <laughs> going to the Denver Broncos. And go to six Pro Bowls. So, whoops. Um, they had a USFL draft, which was 24 rounds. And then they had a 26-round territorial draft. As I mentioned, where you could have exclusive rights to five colleges. The very first pick of the first USL, USFL draft was Dan Marino. No one took the USFL draft seriously until Marino flew out. Um the next day after the draft and said he was actually interested in joining the USFL. This actually wasn't true. He was really just using it for leverage. And if you remember, in the 1983 draft, um, he was actually the sixth quarterback drafted. He dropped really far in the NFL draft. And John Eller was number one in that draft. Um, but he, he used it as leverage, but it at least gave the USFL some legitimacy. Um, with that said, though, the second pick, Ohio State running back Tim Spencer, signed with the Blitz. Four years, $800,000. Uh, Craig James, the fourth pick, signed a four-year, $2 million contract with Washington. And both of those players were legitimate first-round NFL prospects. They would have been drafted inside of the NFL. And so when those guys signed with the USFL, that was kind of the first sign of, hey, this league um, isn't messing around. And that they could also win some battles with against the NFL. They also, um, the USFL, um, signed even before the draft. Um, the Chicago Blitz signed tight end Tim Reitman. Now, he had been drafted by the Bears in 82. He did not like the offer from the Bears. And so he ended up signing with the Blitz. And so between the draft and these signings, the USFL showed that maybe they can't go toe-for-toe with the NFL and everybody. But there were some players that they could entice to play for the league. Um, the, the Chicago Blitz and the Philadelphia Stars were considered to uh, put the best teams together early on in the offseason. Uh, a big benefit for the Philadelphia Stars was Carl Peterson, and he had helped build the Eagles into a Super Bowl runner-up as an assistant general manager. And he actually focused on signing guys who had a burning desire to play football. He looked at the intangibles. He didn't just look at their skills. He also had NFL connections that helped him sign players that were cut. And so Carl Peterson and the Philadelphia Stars would be kind of would be huge factors in the USFL over their um, tenure there. Now there were some issues, despite all this 
kind of positive momentum the USFL had. They did have some issues initially. Now, the New York, New Jersey the franchise, the Generals, it was really considered that it was important for them to have a good owner because you're in the marquee market, the New York marketplace. So Donald Trump, yes, the, the Donald Trump, the ex-president, um, he was supposed to be the original owner of the Generals, but he ended up bailing on the league kind of late in the process. And they had to scramble, and they ended up replacing him with rich oil man J. Walter Duncan. So that was kind of the, the, the first issue that the USFL had. They also planned to put four teams in Canada, but the Canadian government pushed back on that as they didn't want any competition for their own Canadian Football League. The USFL also had issues with their Los Angeles and San Diego franchises. The original Los Angeles owner ended up dropping out so he could become the part owner of the San Diego Chargers. So the USFL found a new LA owner to replace them. At the same time, the San Diego franchise was denied a lease. And so the USFL decided that those owners for San Diego were better off being the owners for LA. So they forced out that new LA owner that they had just gotten and made him take over the Arizona Wranglers uh, franchise while the San Diego owners became the LA owners. So just kind of some... Um, kerfluffles there as they're, they're trying to establish teams in the big markets of New York and Los Angeles. So obviously everything's not going to go smoothly, but those are some issues that happened in the USFL. Now really one of the big watershed moments early on in the USFL before their season started was the signing of Herschel Walker. And I talked about how the AFL had signed Joe Namath. Well, Herschel Walker signing was considered very similar, uh, akin to that, giving the USFL some legitimacy. Now, the the doc, the 30 for 30 doc doesn't really do the, the story justice on how the USFL signed Herschel Walker. Now, Herschel Walker was, was and still is considered one of the greatest running backs and players in college football history. He's on the short list of one of the two or three greatest running backs in college ever. He'd rushed for 1,600 yards, almost 1,900 yards, and 1,750 yards in his first three years at the University of Georgia. He won the Heisman as a junior. Most people feel like he should have won as a freshman. They just didn't give it really to freshmen then. He'd helped Georgia to a national title as a freshman. And right before he signed, um, Georgia was in the Sugar Bowl playing for another national title against Penn State. Spoiler alert, they lost. Uh, he was really considered the next big running back in the NFL after he finished his senior year. Now, again, at the time, the NFL wouldn't sign players that hadn't graduated yet or hadn't played their four years. And so it was expected Herschel Walker would go back, obviously, to Georgia for one more year and then go to the NFL. Now... Out of the blue, the USFL executive director got a call from Herschel Walker's rep um, telling him that uh, he wanted to sign with the USFL. Now, the USFL executive director's name was Steve Earhart. Now, Earhart immediately hung up on his representative because Walker was still an underclassman. And the USFL had not intended to sign underclassmen. They intended to follow the same rules as the NFL. But on top of that, Earhart didn't really think that Herschel, who was expected again to be a future star, would join an upstart league as opposed to the NFL. Now, unbeknownst to Earhart, there had been a lot of behind-the-scenes work by other people to try to get Walker to sign with the USFL. Now, the Chicago Blitz, unbeknownst to Earhart, actually made calls to people who knew Walker, wondering if he would go to the USFL. The Blitz even sent him a USFL contract to see if he'd sign it. But also, Herschel's family did not have a lot of money. Uh, they were concerned that he could get injured his senior year and that he'd miss out on money. And there was even talk of Herschel going to play in the Canadian Football League for a year. Uh, eventually, they really the Walkers really decided that Herschel should play in that national championship game in the Sugar Bowl and then turn pro. Now, two nights before the Sugar Bowl, the USFL secretly met with Walker and his agents and gave him a $1 million cashier check 
to show that he was serious, that the USFL was serious about signing him. Now, Herschel couldn't actually accept it at that time, otherwise he'd be ineligible. At this point, he realized that he was either going to go back to Georgia for his senior year or go to the USFL. He wasn't going to go to the CFL. Um, he, As I said, Georgia lost to Penn State 27-23. Herschel Walker had 103 yards. Two weeks after that was when Earhart got the phone call to uh, from Herschel Walker's rep. And so, like I said, there... While it's a surprise to Earhart, there have been a lot of factors behind the scenes that have been kind of pushing Herschel Walker to the USFL. Now, Earhart was uncomfortable courting Walker, but he realized that Walker, just by reaching out to him, he had actually already made himself ineligible for the NSA just by reaching out. So the USFL discussed it. As I said, they thought it could be like Joe Namath. When Joe Namath shunned the NFL to go to the AFL. But the problem was, though, that if they signed Herschel Walker, that would break the salary restrictions that the Dixon plan put into place about being financially responsible there. They also worried if, if that would hurt the USFL-NCA relations, if the NCA wouldn't let the USFL come to their games to scout. They decided that the rewards outweighed the negatives, and none of the owners objected to signing Walker, and they decided to send him to the New Jersey franchise so he could be in the New York market. Now, the Dallas Cowboys actually heard about this and actually reached out to Walker behind the scenes, even though it was against the rules. And they actually ended up offering Walker more money than the USFL did if he would go to the Cowboys. But Walker ended up sticking with the USFL because they were the, the team, they were, they were the league. That was the first league in on... Uh, you know, trying to get him. So he actually signed a contract with New Jersey, and the owner actually told him, um, to, even though he had signed it, he had 24 hours to reconsider. And so um, Herschel Walker went back to his college coach to tell him the news that he was going pro. His college coach told him it was a big mistake. Of course, the college coach is going to say that because he wants him back for another year. But the college coach told him it was a big mistake. And so Herschel actually changed his mind and told the generals that he was not going to actually play for the USF on the contract. So Walker was going to go back to Georgia. Um, however, through kind of a long story short here, one of the New Jersey general scouts heard about the contract was actually signed. And he happened to just get a phone call from someone he knew from a local newspaper that had kind of heard some things about Herschel Walker. And so this scout ended up leaking the news that Herschel had actually signed with the generals um, to this newspaper art because he felt that the news would come out at some time and that if it came out during Walker's senior year, he'd be ineligible and that could hurt Walker. Or at the very least, that he could get hurt his senior and miss out on this money. And so this news ended up being leaked out. And then because it got leaked out, Walker ended up going to the USFL. But on top of that, part of his mom really encouraged Walker to keep his word and sign the contract, which is what he did. So Walker ended up being the highest paid pro player, not just in the USFL, but the NFL. It was $2 million up front, plus a million dollar bonus in 83 and 84. $1.25 million in 85, and then a $750,000 loan for his investment portfolio. So the Herschel Walker signing all of a sudden showed the world that the USFL was a legitimate league, and that combined with their other signings showed that they could pull some pretty good players into their league. And so while the NFL wasn't necessarily super like, oh, worried about the USFL, there was... a a time there as the 1983 season, their first season was starting, that the NFL and other people thought that the USFL, hey, might be a legitimate league or threat to the NFL. Now, as the USFL actually entered their 1983 season, they're hoping to actually take this hype and turn it into some substance. The preseason buzz had New Jersey, Chicago, Philadelphia and Michigan as the head of the pack of the other teams. Now, the Generals obviously had a lot of preseason buzz because of Herschel Walker. Now, the Blitz uh, had a few good players 
um, on their team that were drawing rave reviews. One was Tim Spencer, who I'd mentioned the number two pick could rush for 1,200 and 1,500 yards his last years at Ohio State. Tim Reitman, the, uh, the, the tight end, um, I mentioned was a consensus All-American at UCLA. But also their number 11 pick, Trumaine Johnson, was their num- uh, was a wide receiver from Grambling State, who people in the Blitz were excited about, as well as obviously George Allen being the coach of the Blitz. Now, Michigan had a couple really intriguing young players. They had the quarterback, Bobby Hebert, who was a third-round draft pick out of Northwestern State in Louisiana. And Anthony Carter was a really big name. He was a territorial draft pick for Michigan. He's a three-time All-American at Michigan, over 3,000 total yards receiving. And upon his graduation, he held nearly every Michigan receiving and return record. He was the Big Ten MVP, and he was fourth place in the Heisman in 1982. So really big uh, pick there, or player there for Michigan. And then the aforementioned uh, Philadelphia Stars and their GM, Carl Peterson. Uh, they had a running back named Kelvin Bryant, who was their territorial pick. He was a three-time All-ACC player at North Carolina. Uh, three 1,000-yard seasons. And he actually still holds, to this day, the NCAA record for most touchdowns in two and three games. Uh, Chuck Fusina was their quarterback. He's a Heisman runner-up and 1978 consensus All-American at Penn State. Threw for over 5,300 yards in his career. He had been the backup for Doug Williams at Tampa Bay and he had, before he signed with the USFL. And then Sam Mills, who is someone that I'm definitely going to really do an in-depth piece on later in this episode, the next episode. But he was a linebacker and he played at Montclair State, which is a really small college. Now, he was released by the Cleveland Browns in 81 and the Toronto Canadian Football League team in 82. And people loved everything about his tape. They thought he was a great player on tape, had great physical playing instincts, but he was only 5 foot 9 inches. And people felt that middle linebackers had to be at least 6 feet tall. And so they'd cut him. And the Cleveland coach that cut him called Carl Peterson and suggested he signed with him. Sign him. And Sam Mills would end up being one of the greatest defensive players in NFL history, and I mean, USFL history and actually NFL history as well, which we'll get to later. So those are the teams ahead of the pack. Tampa Bay and Birmingham were considered respectable, but the rest of the teams were really considered having a lot of talent issues. So there was certainly some concerns as the season started of the haves and have-nots. And so as the season got underway, um, Chicago beat Washington, actually, in their first game, 28-7. to uh, They had three games above 45,000 attendance, people in attendance, and had some good ratings for week one. Um, the interesting thing about Chicago beating Washington was that George Allen was always someone who was into shenanigans and, and finding whatever competitive edge he needed. He actually sent a couple people to Washington the week of their game, and those people told Washington that they were from the USFL to videotape some things, and they actually ended up videotaping their whole practices for the Blitz, and George Allen used that film to to um, beat them. Um, so yeah, talking about like Spygate back in the 80s, that happened. And so generally, um, as the USFL went on and they got to their mid-year point, Generally speaking, people felt the quality of play was thought to be all right. There were definitely some good players in the USFL. Um, the Philadelphia Stars were 8-1, and one, and people felt like they could maybe be competitive in the NFL. Uh, like I said, the quality was all right. But, but certainly there were still some moments in, in teams and players that, that struggled. The USFL, USFL also struggled with some early spring weather in some of their games. Now, this really hurt them because the first few weeks, you know, in the fall, if you're playing in March or April, you can have some nasty rainstorms or storms during some colder weather. And what was really important for the USFL to have some good games and some good ratings early on. And in some markets, some bad weather um, hurt that. We compare it to the if you played a fall season, a lot of times that first month or two of games are really good weather, um, really good weather, 
and and you get you know kind of that good start to the season. So the, the USFL found out that yeah, the end of the year is going to be great weather wise, but those early season games can be a challenge. Um, the, the two points were very well received, the two point conversion. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so really some some good things going on. Uh, again, like I said, that the stars were in first place. Uh, in one division, the the Blitz midway through the year retired the Tampa Bay Bandits for leading their division. Uh, the Boston Breakers were kind of a really good feel good story at five and four. Uh, the Pacific Division though was kind of a mess where all four teams were four and five. Uh, and so some good teams and bad teams. As I said, the Generals were disappointing. Herschel Walker actually really struggled early on. Now part of that was because. He didn't sign until really a week before the season started, so he didn't get that much practice. But there's a few teams I kind of want to highlight here that were doing pretty well. Um, one was the Tampa Bay Bandits, and their phrase, Bandit Ball. Um, they were pretty well received in their market, and they ended up being one of the more successful teams in turn of, terms of popularity in the USFL. Their owner was a guy named John Bassett, and he was really important in the history of the USFL. Um, he had owned the Memphis Southmen of the World Football League. And what he really learned from that failure of the World Football League is that you really need a lot of flair to sell a team. It's not just about football. And so he really focused on that. Um, the actor Burt Reynolds was a part owner. He owned 5% of the team. and He didn't have to pay for it. Um, it was kind of like he got 5% in return for kind of his celebrity presence. The team really listened to Dave Dixon's plan of getting lots of local players. They had a lot of Florida players, and they really pushed them out in the community. It also helped that at the time, the Tampa Bay Bucks were pretty bad, and they were just getting ready to be 2-14. and 14. So they started out 4-1, and one, and they drew really big crowds due to their um, wide-open offense and the focus on fun. Their offense was the brainchild of their head coach, Steve Spurrier, who is only 37, one of the youngest uh Pretty confident, the youngest head coach in the USFL. Now, originally, Bassett had called him up to be the offensive coordinator. And Steve Spurrier said he wanted to be the head coach. And Bassett ended up interviewing him, liked him, and hired him. And this was also big news for the team in Florida, Florida because he was actually the Heisman Trophy winner for the University of Florida. And so um, Tampa Bay was not only a good team, but really kind of listened to the Dixon plan of selling themselves in their market and actually, there's one apparel company that in 1983 sold more Tampa Bay Bandits gear than all other pro teams, except for the Cowboys and Redskins. So, really popular team. Now, the Boston Breakers were not expected to be good, but midway through the year, they were 5-4. and four. They were kind of hamstrung by the fact that they played in the smallest stadium uh, in the USFL, which is Boston University. Had a capacity of only 21,000 people, which is about 30,000 smaller than the next stadium in the USFL. So even if they sold out their stadium, they weren't making a whole lot of money. The head coach is a man named Dick Curry. He actually allowed fans to submit a trick play each week. He would pick one and run it during the game, which is kind of cool. Now their quarterback was Johnny Walton, who has an interesting story. He played at a college called Elizabeth City State University, which is a historically black college. So he was a black quarterback, which was really rare in the 60s when he was in college. And even still in the 80s, um, still a lot of stigma there to black quarterback. And so um, it was a pretty inspiring story there. Now, he graduated in 1969 from college and then signed as a free agent with the L.A. Rams and he played in some preseason games for them from 1969 to 72, but never made the active roster. So in 1969, he ended up playing for the Indianapolis Capitals of the Minor League Continental Football League, which I had never heard of until I looked him up. Led them to the title. Then he played in the aforementioned World Football League. Uh, he was a backup his first year. And then his second year, he was a starter for the San Antonio Wings, and he led the league in passing, touchdowns, and yards. He parlayed that into being the Philadelphia Eagles' backup quarterback from 76 to 79. He played in only 15 games, threw three touchdowns, and then he retired after 1979. Now, Dick Curry was on that Eagles staff, 
And he ended up coaxing Walton uh, back into playing after not playing for four years. And he was 35 years old. So he ended up playing, ended up being actually one of the better quarterbacks in the USFL. And because of Johnny Walton, I see the Boston Breakers were having a lot of success there. Um, the third team to highlight it is the Michigan Panthers. Um, now their owner was Alfred Taubman, and they had been a little bit disappointing. Um, they'd had some great players, as I mentioned, and Bobby Hebert and Anthony Carter, but their offensive line was just really terrible, which is why at the midway point in the year, they were 5-4. and four. So he felt like he could win if he had a better offensive line. So he went out and signed some legit um, – three ex-Pittsburgh Steelers to solidify his offensive line and just spent a lot of money on them. Now, his decision worked out really well as they won 11 of the last 13 games. So that's why it was a really great decision. However, it was actually a really bad decision because it started a bidding war that threw Dixon's plan out the window. Um, The league needed financial responsibility to survive, not just throwing money around. And when other owners saw Taubman uh, spending money and winning, they decided to replicate it. And while they would win and be successful, the Panthers actually lost $6 million that first year. And so it was just kind of an interesting decision. It works out in the win-loss column, but causes some issues down the road there. So by the end of the year, uh, you're – your three division winners were the Philadelphia Stars at 15 and three, the Michigan Panthers at 12 and six, uh, and the Oakland Invaders at nine and nine, and then Cleveland at Cleveland, Chicago, the Blitz got the wild card at 12 and six, and so the Boston Breakers and Tampa Bay Bandits actually just missed out by one game at uh, 11 and seven. A couple of interesting facts: the highest scoring game was a Week 7 game where Boston beat Arizona 44-23. The lowest scoring game was in Week uh, 3 when Philadelphia beat Denver 6-3. Arizona started 10-4 and and then lost their last 10. Washington um, started 1-13. Washington is really terrible. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Arizona and Washington had the two worst records um couple of some of the better players in their leagues uh fred i'm gonna butcher his name i should look this up but bazana b-e-s-a-n-a of oakland threw for 3980 yards and 21 touchdowns johnny walton had three for 3,772, and then Bobby Hebert threw for 3,568 yards, and he actually also threw for 27 touchdowns. Those are your three best quarterbacks. Um, Herschel Walker did rush for 1,812 yards after struggling early on. Kelvin Bryant was next at 1,442 yards. Walker had 17 touchdowns. Bryant had 16. Bryant was actually named the MVP of the season. And Dick Curry of Boston was named Coach of the Year. Uh, Tremaine Johnson of Chicago led the league in receiving at 1,322 yards. Danny Briggs and Eric Trevelyan were both at Tampa Bay. Both had over 1,000 yards, and Trevelyan led the league with 15 TDs. Anthony Carter had a great season, 1,181 yards and 9 TDs. Luther Bradley led the league in interceptions for Chicago with 12. And John Corker, um, so he was your USFL Defensive Player of the Year, He had been the Big 8 Defensive Player of the Year when he was at Oklahoma State. John Corker had 28 sacks, um, which is higher than the current NFL record. Something to remember, and I hadn't mentioned this yet, is that the USFL actually played 18 games instead of 16 games. And so you can't really compare these stats to the NFL when you're playing against inferior competition and have two more games. Um, Yeah, so those are some of the the big-time players and their stats. Really looking at the season, uh, a lot there was a lot of good, and there was some kind of some signs of concerns for the USFL too. Now the TV ratings were higher than expected, and so they were looking for a rating share of, of five, and they got a six share. I really don't know what that means. <laughs> I just know it's a number. 
but the USFL ratings were higher than what they wanted. They averaged 25,000 fans for all games, and 10 of the 12 franchises exceeded the goal of 18 per game. Denver averaged 41, Tampa Bay 40, New Jersey 35. So good ratings, good attendance. The, the bad was that the, the, the marquee franchises of New Jersey and L.A. were not that good. New Jersey was 6-12, L.A. was 8-10. Um, the, their owners wanted to sell. Now, Boston, even though they had a solid season, they wanted to move, particularly because their stadium was bad. On top of that, Chicago, despite their success, didn't really make a dent in the Chicago market, and Washington didn't either, and they were a mess. And the USFL kind of realized that markets that had rabid NFL fan bases like the Bears in Chicago, and at the time, the Redskins in Washington would be tough to break into. Um, Denver was the only team to turn a profit, which wasn't really entirely unexpected. If you remember, Dixon's plan was that owners would be able to withstand losses early on there usfl did have some concerns that it wouldn't last pete roselle the nfl commissioner after watching the first season was no longer concerned about the usfl he predicted they'd last another season or two and then to save face bring a lawsuit against the nfl which would turn out to be pretty president president that's not that's not how you say that pretty forward thinking we'll go with that word phrasing there but some pros and cons there with, uh, with the USFL. And so this all set up for the playoffs, which ended up being a really exciting uh, playoffs. There were two divisional games, essentially semifinals, and you had Philadelphia facing the Blitz of Chicago. Now Chicago got up 31-14 to going into the fourth quarter, and then with 10 minutes to go in the game, the Blitz were up 38-17. to Part of this was that the quarterback for the Stars, Chuck Fresina, had four turnovers. But Fresina led the Stars back and threw touchdowns with nine minutes to go, five minutes to go, and 50 seconds to go, which forced overtime as the teams were tied 38-38. And then Kelvin Bryant, the running back for Philadelphia, scored a touchdown midway through the first overtime to win the game for the Stars. And the Stars won 44-38. to which ended up being the highest-scoring game of the year. Fresina had three touchdowns and four picks. Bryant had 142 yards and two touchdowns for on the Stars. And Fitzke had 102 yards receiving and one touchdown for the Stars. Really, the, the Chicago Blitz stats were pretty blah. The Stars had 556 total yards. The Blitz only had 218 yards. So Chicago was really fortunate early on that the Stars turned the ball over a lot. And Jim Mora, who was the Stars coach, said he wasn't worried about losing the game. He felt like they were moving the ball while they just had to stop turning it over. Once they did, they won the game. Now, Ed Sable, who um, was one of the owners of NFL Films, uh, he actually said it's, it, that game was one of the three most exciting games he ever saw, period. So a really exciting game for the USFL in the first semifinal. Their other semifinal was Michigan versus Oakland. And Oakland would go up seven to nothing, but then Michigan would outscore Oakland thirty-one to seven over the next two quarters, and they won the game easy, thirty-seven twenty-one. Hebert had two hundred ninety-five yards passing. Oh, Carter had a touchdown. Holloway had sixty yards for Michigan. Uh, Chuck Persina had two hundred fifty-eight yards for Oakland, two touchdowns. Um, so pretty much an easy Michigan win. Ironically. Um, these two teams would actually merge in two seasons in 1985. So that led to the USFL championship game between Michigan and Philadelphia. And there was a lot of anticipation for this game because at the time, most Super Bowls were actually pretty bad in blowouts. And so the USFL hoped they could put on a good game um, to attract some fans. And unfortunately for them, uh, John Elway was traded from Baltimore to the Denver Broncos during that week. And if you don't know your NFL history, John Elway was drafted number one overall in the 1983 draft by Baltimore. He said he would never play with for Baltimore. And this was kind of a big back and forth. Baltimore said they weren't going to trade him. 
Elway said he wouldn't play for the Colts. Um, and he ended up getting traded to Denver. So a lot of the reporters left, um, you know, in the USFL, the championship game was played in Denver. Uh, a lot of the reporters left the USFL media days and then went to go cover uh, the, the John Elway, the John Elway news of him going to uh, the Broncos. But with that said, as the week went on, there was certainly an intrigue for the game. Uh, the teams didn't like each other because earlier in the season when Michigan and Philadelphia played, a Michigan defensive back threw a racial slur, slur out at the Philadelphia running back, Kelvin Bryant. And so by the time the game started, there was a lot of intrigue in the game and hope the game would be a pretty good game. So early on, Michigan led 10-3 at the half, and then 17-3 after the third quarter. There was two touchdowns thrown to Holloway of, of Michigan. But then Philadelphia came back and scored eight straight points uh, in the first, or eight straight points, 11 straight points in the first six minutes of the fourth. So they had a field goal, a touchdown, and a two-point conversion to make it 17-14. to so three minutes ago, Michigan has the ball second and ten at midfield, and they're trying to either score, put the game away, or run the clock out. Philadelphia's trying to get the ball back to try to go down and win the game. So Philadelphia ends up sending a blitz, and Hebert ends up hitting Anthony Carter for a pass, and he cuts inside and makes two defenders miss and runs in the end zone for a touchdown to make it 24-14 with three minutes to go. Um, that would essentially be uh, the game-winning touchdown. Philadelphia would come down and score a touchdown and two-point conversion as time expired to make the final score 24-22. But that big pass play by Hebert to Carter uh, was really the, the winning touchdown there for the Panthers. And so the Michigan Panthers ended up being the first USFL champion. They won 24-22. Hebert was the game MVP, 314 yards. Three touchdowns and interception. Anthony Carter had nine catches, 179 yards and a touchdown. The other receiver, Holloway, had two touchdowns. Uh, Corker had two sacks for Michigan. Fresina for Philadelphia, three for 192 yards and two touchdowns. And the USFL MVP, Kelvin Bryant, had only 89 yards in the game. Now there, after at the end of the game, there is some negative press for the USFL when. Fans stormed the field to tear down the goalpost, and police ended up fighting the fans and macing the fans. And so the USFL had this really great game to end their season, and then it was really marred by kind of the celebration there. Uh, not the celebration, the fans versus police incident at the end of the game. But either way, with that said, at the end of the first season, the USFL had a lot of yeah, positive momentum. There are some good things going on, some good players in the league, some good teams in the league, some good play, but there are certainly some concerns too. Not every team was financially in good shape. Some owners wanted out. Uh, and again, there's just some concern with the viability of spring football, but also was the league going to hold on to the Dixon plan or were they going to kind of start spending money like Michigan did, which helped them win the title. So... I think I'm going to get, put a bow on this right here, and we'll make this part one of the USFL, um, history of the USFL, going and through the eyes of, uh, you know, inspired by at least the 30 for 30 documentary, Small Potatoes, What Killed the USFL. In my next episode, my plan is to look at the 84 and 85 seasons and what ultimately led to the downfall of the USFL. But... I hope you enjoyed this podcast, whether this was the first time you've listened to Doc Tell Me More or whether this was the 28th time you've listened to Doc Tell Me More. And either way, I really appreciate you listening to this. Yeah, I do have a Twitter account at, at Doc Tell Me More. Appreciate it if you give me a follow and subscribe to my podcast as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and... Before I let you go as well, I encourage you, the USFL is going on. I meant to talk about that a lot more, but I'll just save that for the next episode. But the USFL is going on. They are through eight weeks right now. 
of this season. There are two more weeks left, and then their playoffs and their championship game is on July 4th, which I'll have my next episode before that. But I do encourage you to check out the USFL on the weekends, and in my next episode, I'll give a little bit of insight into how that season is going for the USFL. Be the ways, I appreciate you listening to Doc Tell Me More, and I will talk to you later.